0: Hello, folks. It's summertime, and the listening is easy. Of course, what to choose? What to choose? Well, on the Simply Scary Network, there are all kinds of spooky entertainment ready to give you chills you need to get through all this heat. Don't miss the latest episode of Drew Blood's Dark Tales, with new episodes premiering Fridays. And, of course, don't forget Horror Hill with Eric Peabody Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, Fear from the Heartland with Paul J. McSorley, and you can find them all at simplyscarypodcast.com, on YouTube, or your favorite podcasting service. Or be sure to visit the chillingtalesfordarknights.com website and become a patron and hear extended episodes from our vast audio archive. Grab a cool drink, sit a spell, and join us
1: for a scary
0: good time. We're waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyrie, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? (laughs) (laughs) Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to episode 12, season 13. I'm your host, Otis Jari, and in this episode, I'll be performing three tales to terrify you, courtesy of classic author and fellow excellent name enthusiast, Otis Edelbert Klein. Tonight we'll hear stories of repugnant revenants, cataclysmic canines, and of certain things that ought not to be. We may get to things that should not be another time. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now... It's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> When guarding bodies at the local morgue, you would hope that things would stay quiet, as uncomfortable as that silence might be. Still, you all, know, it might just happen that you might be visited by someone to have a chat, and that person ought not to be speaking to anybody. Without further ado, I present to you the corpse on the third slide. Officer Ryan walked slowly along between two rows of cold, moist slabs on which reposed the chill, grisly remains of what had once been human beings. He essayed a few bars of River Shannon in his rich Killarney baritone, not loudly, yet with volume enough to drown the weird, uncanny echoes that rang back from the walls and sloping ceiling of the morgue, each time as heavy hobnailed shoes came in contact with the floor. Though he knew himself to be alone in the room, those echoes somehow gave him a feeling that he was being followed, a queer, creepy sensation that was far from agreeable. He stopped his humming abruptly. What was that? The sound of many voices mimicking his own? Suddenly he realized and laughed. A myriad hollow cackles answered him. His face grew somber again, and he roundly cursed his superior who had detailed him for a special duty in this ghastly place, all because a corpse which nobody could identify and consequently nobody wanted had been stolen the night before. He glanced at the dial of his watch. It was nearly one o'clock. Five long, dreary hours must pass before he could go home to the wife and kiddies. An attendant had thoughtfully placed a chair from the office form at the far end of the room. His instructions were to patrol the place every half hour. As it took him only five minutes to make the rounds, there was twenty-five minute intervals of rest twice every hour. He hurried his pace a little as he neared the chair. Once seated, they burned he would at least be rid of the sound of those haunting footsteps. He was walking along, swinging his nightstick with attempted jauntiness, when out of the tail of his eye he saw, or imagined he saw, a slight movement of the sheet covering the corpse at his right. He stopped, petrified with amazement, and stared at the thing on the cold gray slab, while a strange, prickly feeling coursed the length of his dorsal vertebrae. With forced bravado, he stepped up beside the still figure and turned back the sheet. The corpse, which lay on the third slab from the end, was that of a middle-aged man, gray-haired, slightly bald, and dressed in the garb of a laborer. No doubt the face had not been unpleasant to look at in life, but in death it was hardly a thing of beauty, with its glassy, staring eyes sagging lower jaw And protruding blue white tongue. Ryan replaced the sheet with the shutter and hurried to his chair. The place certainly got on his nerves. He'd known that it would when Chief Howell assigned him to it, and in observation of the old proverb, forewarned is forearmed, he made due preparation for the exigency. The preparation was very simple. He poured some pale amber liquid from a large round bottle to a small flat flask. The flat bottom reposed snugly in his hip pocket. The large round bottle, a gallon of moon, had been a present from a bootlegger friend. "'Don't be afraid to drink it like water, Ed. his friend had told him. "'I know it's all right, because I made it myself. You won't find no slivers in that hooch." Despite the admonition of his friend, bottle had reposed in the Ryan basement for six months untouched. Ryan wasn't a habitual drinker, but he believed in capping a nip in the house for emergency. He glanced slyly toward the office door, then extracted the bottle from his hip pocket, pulled the cork, and held it up to the light to admire its color and lucidity, as connoisseurs admire rare old wine. With some dismay, he noticed that it was nearly two-thirds empty, whereas the night was scarcely more than half gone. He must cut down the size of his drinks, or go without during the wee small hours. He'd cut down, too, after this one. Just this once, he must have a man-sized shot. He needed it sorely. Staring eyes and lolling tongue of that corpse in the third slab had set his nerves on edge, Placing the bottle to his lips, he drank deeply, corked it, and returned it to his hip pocket with a sigh. "'Sure, and that man knows how to build booze,' he muttered. It goes down as smooth as oil, and it has a flavor like ten-year-old bottled in bond.' He sat in silence until his watch told him that it was time to make the rounds again, then rose reluctantly to perform his distasteful duty. When he arrived opposite the third slab, he resolutely looked straight ahead. Thus, he reasoned if the thing should move, he would not see it, and there would be no harm done. Ryan had overlooked the fact that he had a pair of perfectly good ears, and that they were in excellent working order. Slipping, sliding, soul-sickening sound from the direction of the third slab acted as a forcible reminder. With a gasp of horror, fairly flew to the chair. He sat down weakly, mopped the cold perspiration from his forehead, finished the contents of his bottle at one gurgling gulp. Ryan had made up his mind not to look in the direction of that slab again, and when he made up his mind, he was a hard man to change. Stubborn determination to carry out his plan, come what might, he pivoted his swivel chair a half turn And settled down to await the dreary passage of another twenty five minutes. Now let the damn thing turn over all it wants to, or do a toe dance for all of me. I'll not give it the satisfaction of watching its devilish capers, he resolved, half aloud. That last drink had been a stiff one. In fact, it would have made four good husky drinks for as many hardy lumberjacks or longshoremen. Ryan grew drowsy. Decorators had been at work in the morgue that day, white enameling the walls, and he told himself that the smell of the turpentine made him sleepy. That and the cursed drink must the odor of the damn place itself. His head nodded until his chin rested on one of the gold buttons at the door on the front of his uniform. Sometime later, he awoke with a start and looked at his watch. He looked again, rubbing his eyes to make sure that he was awake. Surely had not slept more than ten minutes, yet the hands told me it was 4.30. He wondered what had awakened him. It had been a noise of some sort. He dimly remembered that much, but try as he would, couldn't recall the nature of the sound. Suddenly, and with startling distinctness, the noise was repeated. It was the sharp click of a heavy shoe on the hard concrete floor, scarce that the hollow echoes died when he heard it again. Someone was walking toward him with slow, dragging footsteps from the direction of the third slab. Ryan was no coward. On the contrary, he'd shown marked bravery in many encounters with desperate bandits and thugs of the underworld. Neither was he superstitious. He believed that when a man was dead, he was gone. How was that? His soul might go to purgatory, and thence to heaven or hell, but never return to earth. Yet despite his inherent bravery and his firm theological convictions, he could not bring himself to swing his chair about and face the thing that was approaching. In fact, he discovered to his utter horror he was unable to move. He couldn't so much as lift his nerveless hands from the arms of the chair, Even breathing was difficult, as though great chains had been wound about his body, pinning it against the chair back. Deliberately, painfully, those weird echoing footfalls approached. The thing was almost upon him, yet he could not move nor utter a sound. An odd, misshapen shadow appeared on the floor in front of him. Slowly it crawled up the side of the wall, its grotesque outline gradually assuming human form. Then the thing appeared itself. The invisible chains about Ryan's chest tightened, and icy fingers laid hold of his wildly beating heart and squeezed it until it pounded eccentrically. The with cracked spark plugs, for he recognized the gaunt figure and grisly features of the corpse from the third slab. It stood there before him, swaying slightly, then extended its gnarled left hand, steadied itself against the wall. As those glassy eyes stared into his, Ryan's palate seemed to shrivel and dry up. It rattled like a dead leaf in a gale with each intake of his breath. Evidently, the corpse was trying to converse with him, for its blue-white tongue and lips moved slightly. Presently, it obtained some measure of control over them, and spoke in a hoarse husky whisper. Good, good evening. Ron was too petrified with horror to reply. The corpse looked at him curiously for a moment. Evidently it had reached the decision that it had said the wrong thing. It, it tried again. Oh, good ear, good morning, Oshaf. Ah, the policeman's tongue seemed glued to the roof of his mouth. What's matter? Deaf and dumb. To his amazement, Ryan heard himself speaking. Anger at the others, insulting insinuation, had loosened his tongue. No, you ain't deaf and dumb. We don't like the likes of ye's, that's all. Now go back and lay down on your slab and behave yourself. Or he'll kill you deader than you are already. The corpse leered horribly. Then it laughed. A cackling graveyard laugh that brought on a fit of coughing. Fooled you too, did I, it rasped. Fooled them all. Fooled the old woman. Fooled the ash man. Fooled everybody. Go on, you ain't fooled nobody. Fooled them all, I tell you. She put chloroform in my hooch. Wanted to lope with the ash man. Don't care. Better lope and good riddance. Damned she-devil, anyhow. But I've fooled them. They think I'm dead, but I ain't. No more dead than you are. Hell, you ain't, growled Ryan. Tell you I ain't, wheezed the horse testily. Can't I walk? Can't I talk? Can't I do anything any live person can do? Of course you can, agreed Ryan, who felt like he was beginning to see the light. "'Anything can walk in a dream, even a corpse. I once saw a kitchen table do the toddle with a grand piano in a nightmare. "'Who said anything about a dream? "'I'm not a dream, and I can prove it.' "'You'll have to show me,' said Ryan. "'I'm from St. Louis.' "'All right. "'If I was a dream, you could see and hear me. "'But I couldn't see and hear you. "'Am I right or wrong?' "'Right.' For instance, I wouldn't know whether you was a bull or a ballet dancer. I wouldn't be able to tell if you was smooth-faced or wore a set of patsies. Sure, you wouldn't, and you don't. Well, don't I, though? Get this. You're a big, overground, dish-faced, bull-neck cop. With a long, loppy, carrot-colored set of soup-strainers makes you look like a seasick walrus ryan tried to rise and smite the presumptuous one but the invisible bonds held him he gritted his teeth you'll suffer for this dream or no dream corpse or no corpse he groaned the corpse stared glassily unmoved by his threat you know he continued i've been in better jails than this no heat no blankets nothing Beds are cold as ice and hard as rocks, and the sheets are thin as paper. Ryan was astounded. Could it be possible that this corpse didn't know it was in the morgue? The thing yawned, disclosing its ghastly blue-white tongue. Oh, I'm getting sleepy again because I crawl back into the old sheetrock bunk. Good night, bottlenose. This was too much for Ryan. He naturally florided countenance, turned purple with anger, as he watched the coolest figure stagger slowly toward the third slab. If he could only move. He concentrated his gaze on his little finger. Even it was incapable of motion, he thought. He tried to wiggle it, nevertheless, and lo, it wiggled. He essayed to lift his hand. It lifted. He was overcome with joy. Rising carefully and noiselessly from the chair, he tiptoed stealthily after the corpse. First, he thought to lay a heavy hand on its shoulder, but he couldn't bring himself to touch it. Revenge, sweet revenge, was almost within his grasp, yet he dared not grasp it. Then came an inspiration. Shifting his bulk to his left foot, he poised his right, took careful aim at the tattered hip pocket. Somehow, because the pocket was moving, or mayhap because the amber liquid had befuddled his vision, he miscalculated the range. The heavy hobnailed boot traveled upward to where a solid target should have been but wasn't, and kept on traveling. It would probably have soared upward to the ceiling had it not been most intimately connected to Ryan's anatomy. As it was, it jerked his left foot from under him back of his head collided with the floor and caught a momentary glimpse of a hitherto unheard of glorious, brilliant, stellar constellation. Then a curtain of dismal darkness descended around him, dragging him down to oblivion. Ryan's first approach to consciousness after that was a half-dreaming, half-waking state. He was under the impression that he was a corpse lying on a cold gray slab. He put out his hand, then jerked it back hastily. He was lying on something cold and hard. This discovery quickly and thoroughly awakened him. He sat up and groaned as a sharp pain shot through his head. Surely something had laid it wide open in the back. He felt it tenderly and discovered a beautifully rounded contusion. Suddenly he heard the hum of voices... One, in particular, sounded like that of Chief Howell. He rose hastily, picked up his cap, and dusted his uniform. His watch told him it was six o'clock. He tried to recall how and why he was lying on the floor with the goose egg on the back of his head. At length, he remembered and glanced suspiciously toward the third slab. It was occupied, nor had the corpse apparently been disturbed, for it lay just as he had seen it when he passed at one o'clock with the sheet draping its angular figure. The sound of voices grew more distant. Someone had opened the office door. Chief Howell was holding it open while two attendants entered, bearing a litter on which lay the body of a coarse, thick-featured woman. Her face was horribly mutilated, and her hair and clothing were stained and matted with blood. The attendants, casting about for a vacant slab, noted that the fourth was unoccupied, and conveyed the body thither. Chief Howell called to someone who had just entered the office through the outer door. Oh, Come in, coroner. I guess we've got this thing straightened out for you now. Coroner Haynes entered, and the two walked over to the third slab. The chief threw a photograph from his pocket and, raising the sheet, compared it with the features of the corpse. Same, all right, said Howell. Who? Oh, this woman's husband, Frank Merlin. She killed him night before last, with chloroform in a bottle of moonshine whiskey he had, so she could loop with the Ash Man. As soon as he was dead, she called up her affinity, who carried the body out of his cart, wrapped in gunny sacks, and hauled it to another part of the city, where he dumped it in a dark alley. Last night, she and her sweetheart got into a drunken argument, and he almost cut her to ribbons. Neighbors, hearing the repose, called the officer on the beat. When he arrived, the woman was dead, and the man, beastly drunk, had to be clubbed almost into insensibility before he would submit to arrest. When he was brought in, I doused him with cold water and sobered him up. After a severe grittling, he confessed all. Ryan listened to the story with bulging eyes. It regarded his experience of the night before as a dream. What if, after all, it was a reality? He started for the office when something arrested his attention. The mark of a human hand on the newly embalmed wall, as if someone had leaned against it. He recalled the attitude of the corpses that stood by that wall the night before, and curiosity drew him irresistibly to the third slab. The left hand was palm downward, and he turned it with difficulty for rigor mortis had set in. Then he cried out in amazement at what he saw. The palm of the dead man was smeared with sticky, half-dried white enamel. I hope you enjoyed The Corpse on the Third Slab by Otis Adelbert Klein as performed by George truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, I would suggest checking out old volumes of Weird Tales. A long editor of the famed collection of the bazaar, he was also fond of writing adventure stories and, most notably, took on representation duties of famed Conan creator Robert E. Howard until the latter's death in 1936 and acted as agent for his estate in the time following. I'd especially recommend his The Thing of a Thousand Shapes, which is not included in tonight's readings, but the two-part novella is available online for your perusal. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured authors Don't you hate it when you hope that a dream turns out to be reality after all? One time I dreamt I was sitting in front of an ice cream uh, that was made of vanilla, fudge, an eyeball, and eyeball, blood syrup poured over the top. I then woke up and went into the kitchen, and wouldn't you know it, my latest victim got his eyeball and blood all over my Sunday. Oh, it just breaks your heart. But maybe the worst kind of problem is the one you can't see, even when it's right in front of you. Well, an investigation takes a darker turn when it's revealed that sometimes you really wish you could see it coming. Without further ado, I present to you The Phantom Wolfhound. Dr. Dorp reluctantly laid aside the manuscript on which he'd been working, Captain pocketed his fountain pen and rose to meet his callers. He was visibly annoyed by this, the third interruption of the afternoon, but his look of irritation changed to a welcoming smile when he saw the bulky form that was framed in the doorway. He recognized Harry Hoyne of the Hoyne Detective Agency, a heavy-set, florid-faced man whose iron-grey hair and mustache proclaimed him well past middle age. The slender, stoop-shouldered individual who accompanied him was a total stranger. He had pale hawk-like features, small, stinky eyes, that glittered oddly from cavernous sockets, and long bony fingers that suggested the claws of a bird. Hello, Doc, boomed the detective, genially, crushing the hand of his host in his great muscular paw. Meet Mr. Ritzky. The doctor was conscious of a cold, clammy sensation as he took the hand of the stranger and acknowledged the introduction. Was it the contrast between those chill fingers and the strong warm ones of the detective that had caused this feeling? He didn't know, but somehow instinctively, he disliked Mr. Ritzky. "'I got a queer case for you, Doc,' said Hoyne, taking a proffered cigar." And inserting it far back in his cheek, unlighted. Just your specialty, ghosts and all that. I told Mr. Ritzky you'd be the only man to unravel the mystery for him. I was over to his house last night and the thing got me. Too unsubstantial, too damn elusive, unreal. Uh, yet I swear there was something there. I heard it, but it got away and didn't leave a trace. "'When it comes to fingerprints and things like that, "'you know I ain't exactly a dumbbell. "'I gotta admit this thing, whatever it is, "'had me hopelessly hornswoggled. "'Britzke declined a cigar, "'saying he didn't dare smoke because of heart trouble. "'The doctor selected one with care, "'lighted it slowly, puffed it with a relish, "'and settled back with a look of eager anticipation in his eyes. "'What happened last night?' he asked. Maybe we better begin at the beginning," said Horne. "You see, there is quite a story that goes along with this case, and Mister Ritzky can tell it better than I. Don't be afraid to give him all the dope, Mister Ritzky. The doctor knows all about such things. Wrote a book about him, in fact. Let's see, what was the name of that book, Doc? Investigations of Materialization Phenomena. Righto. I could never remember it. Anyhow, Mister Ritzky." Tell him your story and ask him all the questions you want to. He's headquarters on this stuff. Ritsky studied his claw like hands for a moment, clasping and unclasping the bony fingers. Suddenly he looked up. Do animals have immortal souls? he asked anxiously. I'm afraid you have sadly overrated my ability as a recorder of scientific facts, replied the doctor, smiling slightly. Frankly, I don't know. I don't believe anyone knows. Most people think they haven't, and I incline toward that belief. Then such a thing as a ghost of a hound could not be? I wouldn't say that. Nothing's impossible. There are undoubtedly more things in heaven and earth, as Shakespeare said, than we've dreamed of in our philosophy. However, I'd consider a materialization of the disembodied spirit of a canine or any of the other lower animals as highly improbable. But what if you saw one with your own eyes? I should probably be inclined to doubt the evidence of my senses. Have you seen one? I uh, Have I seen one? Groaned Ritsky. Good Lord, man, I'd give every cent I own to be rid of that thing. For two years, it's turned my nights into hell. From a perfectly healthy, normal human being, I've been reduced to a physical wreck. Sometimes I think my reason is slipping. The thing will either kill me or drive me mad if it's not stopped. He buried his face in his hands. This is most strange, said the doctor. You say the apparition first troubled you two years ago? Not in its present form, but it was there, nevertheless first time I saw it was shortly after I killed that cursed dog. A month to be exact. I shot him on the 21st of August, and he, or it, or something, came back to haunt me on the 21st of September. How vividly I remember the impressions of that first night of terror. How I tried, the next day to make myself believe it was only a dream, that such a thing could not be. I had retired at 11 o'clock and was awakened from a sound sleep sometime between 1 and 2 in the morning by the whining yappy cry of a dog as there were no dogs in the premises you can imagine my surprise I was about to get up when something directly over the foot of my bed riveted my attention in the dim light it appeared a grayish-white in color and closely resembled the head and pendant ears of a hound I noticed, with horror, that it was moving slowly toward me and I was temporarily paralyzed with fright when it emitted a low, cavernous growl. Driving my muscles by a supreme effort of will, I leapt from the bed and switched on the light. In the air, where I'd seen the thing hanging, there was nothing. The door was bolted and the windows were screened. There's nothing unusual in the room, as I found after a thorough search. Mystified, I hunted through the entire house from top to bottom, but without finding a trace of the thing, whatever it was that had made the sounds. From that day to this, I've never laid my head on a pillow with a feeling of security. At first, it visited me at intervals of about a week. Those intervals were gradually shortened until it came every night. As it visits, and becomes more frequent, The apparition seemed to grow. First, it sprouted a small body like that of a terrier, all out of proportion to the huge head. Each night, that body grew a little larger until it assumed the full proportions of a Russian wolfhound. Recently, it's attempted to attack me, but I've always frustrated it by switching on the light. "'Are you positive that you've not been dreaming all this?' asked the doctor. "'Would it be possible for someone else to hear a dream of mine?' countered Ritsky. "'We've only been able to retain one servant on account of those noises. "'All with the exception of our housekeeper, who is quite deaf, "'heard the noises, and left us as a result. "'Who are the members of your household?' "'Other than the housekeeper and myself, there's only my niece and Ward, "'a girl of twelve. "'Has she heard the noises?' "'She's never mentioned them. "'Why not move to another apartment? "'That would do no good. "'We've moved five times in the past two years. "'When the thing first started, "'we were living on the estate of my niece near Lake Forest. "'We left the place in charge of caretakers "'and moved to Evanston. "'The apparition followed us. "'We moved to Englewood. "'The thing moved with us. "'We've had three different apartments in Chicago since.' It came to all of them with equal regularity. Would you mind writing me the various addresses at which you've lived? Not at all, if they'll assist in solving this mystery. The doctor procured a pencil and a sheet of notepaper. Ritsky put down the addresses. Dr. Dorp scanned them carefully. Villa Rogers, he said. And your niece is Ola Rogers, daughter of millionaire James Rogers and his beautiful wife, the former Russian dancer, both of whom were lost in the Titanic. Olga's mother was my sister. After the sudden death of her parents, the court appointed me her guardian and trustee of the estate. I believe that is all the information we need for the present, Mr. Ritzky. If you have no objection, I'll call you after dinner this evening. And if Mr. Horn cares to accompany me, we'll see what we can do towards solving this mystery. Please take care that no one in your home is surprised at the object of our visit. Say if you wish that we're going to install some electrical equipment. We'll be there with bells, said Horn as they rose to go. Two. Shortly after his guest's departure, Dr. Dorp was speeding out Sheridan Road toward Villa Rogers. The drive took nearly an hour spent another half-hour questioning the caretaker's man and wife. He returned home with a well-filled notebook, and on his arrival, he began immediately assembling paraphernalia for the evening's work. This consisted of three cameras with specially constructed shutters, several small electrical mechanisms, a coil of insulated wire, a flash gun, and a kit of tools. After dinner, he picked up Hoyne at his home, and they started for the haunted house. You say you investigated this case last night, Hoyne? Asked the doctor. Tried to, but there was nothing to it, as far as I could see, except the whining of that dog. Where were you when you heard the noises? Ritsky had retired. I slept in a chair in his room. About two o'clock, I was awakened by a whining noise, not loud, yet distinctly audible. Then I heard a yell from Ritzky. He switched on the light a moment later, then sat down on the bed, trembling from head to foot while beads of perspiration stood out on his forehead. Did you see it? he asked me. see what? I said. The hound. I told him I hadn't seen a thing, but I heard the noise all right. Between you and me, though, I think I saw White Flash for a second beside his bed, but I can't swear to it. Uh, we won't trust our eyes tonight, said the doctor. I have three eyes in that case that will not be affected by hysteria or register hallucinations. Three eyes? What are you talking about? Cameras, of course. But how? Where do we get there? I'll show you. A few moments later, they were admitted to the apartment by the housekeeper. A stolid woman of sixty or thereabout. Ritsky presented them to his niece, a dreamy-eyed, delicately pretty schoolgirl with silky golden curls that glistened against the pale whiteness of her skin. If you don't mind, said the doctor, we'll look things over now. It'll take some time to install the wiring and make other necessary preparations. Ritsky showed them through the apartment, which was roomy, furnished in good taste, and artistically decorated. The floor plan was quite simple and ordinary. First came the large living room that extended across the front of the house. This opened at the right into the dining room and at the center into a hallway, which led through to the back of the building. Behind the dining room was the kitchen and behind that, the servant's room. Gritsky's bedroom was directly across the hall from the dining room. Then came his niece's bedroom, a spare bedroom and a bathroom. Each of the three front bedrooms was equipped with a private bath and large clothes closet. The doctor began by installing the three cameras in Ritzky's room, fastening them on the wall in such a manner that they faced the bed from three directions. After focusing them properly, he set the flash gun on a collapsible tripod and pointed it toward the bed. The room was lighted by an alabaster bowl that depended from the ceiling and could be turned on or off by a switch at the bedside. There were, in addition, two wall lights, one on each side of the dresser, and a small reading lamp on a table in one corner. These last three lights were operated by individual pull cords. Ritzke procured a stepladder for him, and after switching off the drop light, he removed one of the bulbs from the cluster and inserted a four-way socket. From this socket, he ran wires along the ceiling and down the wall to the three cameras in the flash gun by the time these preparations were completed, Miss Rogers and the housekeeper had retired. Hoyne surveyed the finished job with frank admiration. If there's anything in this room when Ritsky turns the switch, those three mechanical eyes will sure spot it, he said enthusiastically. Now, Mr. Ritsky, began the doctor, I want you to place yourself entirely in our hands for the night. Keep cool, fear nothing. And carry out my instructions to the letter. I suggest that you go to bed now and endeavor to get some sleep. If the operation troubles you, do just as you've done in the past. Turn on the light. Do not, however, touch the light switch unless the thing appears. Photographic plates, when developed, will tell whether you've been suffering from a mere hallucination induced by auto-suggestion, or if genuine materialization phenomena have occurred. After closing and bolting the windows, they placed the stepladder in the hallway beside Ritzky's door. Then they obtained a duplicate key from him and asked him to lock himself in, removing his key so they might gain entrance at any time. When everything was ready, they quietly brought two chairs into the hall from the spare bedroom and began their silent vigil. Three. Both men sat in silence for nearly three hours. The doctor seemed lost in thought, and Hoyne nervously masticated his inevitable, unlighted cigar. The house was quiet, except for the ticking of the hall clock and its hourly chiming announcements of the flight of time. Shortly after the clock struck two, they heard a low, scarcely audible moon. What was that? whispered the detective hoarsely. Wait! Wait! The doctor replied. Presently, it was repeated, followed by prolonged sobbing. It's Miss Rogers, said Horne excitedly. Dr. Dorp rose and softly tiptoed to the door of the child's bedchamber. After listening there for a moment, he noiselessly opened the door and entered. Presently, he returned, leaving the door ajar. sobbing and moaning continued. Just as I expected, he said. "'I want you to go to the child's room, keep quiet, "'and make a mental note of everything you see and hear. "'Stay there until I call you and be prepared for a startling sight.' "'What is it?' asked Hoyne nervously. "'Nothing that'll hurt you. "'What's the matter? Are you afraid?' (laughs) "'Afraid? Hell!' growled Hoyne. "'Can't a man ask you a question?' "'No time for answers on questions now. Get in there. "'Do as I say if you want to be of any assistance.' All right, Doc, it's your party. The big detective entered the room with the sobbing child and squeezed his great bulk into a dainty rocking chair from which he could view her bed. She tossed from side to side, moaning as if in pain, and Hoyne, pitying her, wondered why the doctor did not waken her. Presently, she ceased her convulsive movements, clenched her hands, and uttered a low, gurgling cry as a white, filmy mass slowly emerged from between her lips. The amazed detective stared with open mouth, so afraid that he forgot to chew his cigar. The filmy material continued to pour forth for several minutes. It seemed like hours to the tense watcher. Then it formed a nebulous, wispy cloud above the bed, completely detached itself from the girl, floated out through the half-open door. Dr. Dorp, standing in the hallway, saw a white misty thing of indefinite outline emerge from the bedroom. It floated through the hall and paused directly in front of Ritsky's door. He approached it cautiously and noiselessly and noticed that it grew rapidly smaller. Then he discovered the reason. It was flowing through the keyhole. In a short time, it had totally disappeared. He waited breathlessly. What was that? The whining cry of a hound broke the stillness. He mounted the stepladder in order to view the interior of the room through the glass transom. It scarcely placed his foot on the second step when the whining noise changed to a gurgling growl that was followed by a shriek of mortal terror and a dull report of the flash gun. Leaping down from the ladder, the doctor called Hoyne and they entered the haunted bedroom chamber. The room was brilliantly lighted by the alabaster bowl and filled with the sickening fumes of flash powder. Boyne opened the windows and returned to where the doctor was thoughtfully viewing Ritzky, who had apparently fainted. He'd fallen half out of bed and hung there with one bony arm trailing, and his emaciated face a picture of abject fear. "'My God!' exclaimed Boyne. "'Look there on his throat and chest! The frothy slaver of a hound!' The doctor took a small porcelain dish from his pocket, removed the lid, and with the blade of his pocket knife scraped part of the slimy deposit into the receptacle. Hadn't you better try to bring him to," inquired Hoyne. After they lifted him back in dead the doctor leaned over and held his ear to the breast of the recumbent man. He took a stethoscope from his case and listened again. Then he straightened gravely. No earthly power can bring him to, he said softly. Risky's dead. Four. The detective remained in the house pending the arrival of the coroner and undertaker, while Dr. Dorp hurried home with his paraphernalia and the sample of slime he'd scraped from the corpse. Rain was puzzled by the fact that the doctor searched the house and the clothing of the dead man before departing. The detective was kept busy at the Ritsky apartment until nearly 10 o'clock. After stopping at a restaurant for a bit of breakfast and a cup of coffee, he went directly to the doctor's home. He found the psychologist in his laboratory, engrossed in a complicated chemical experiment. He shook a test tube, which he'd been heating over a small alcohol lamp, held it up to the light, stood it in a small rack in which were a number of other partly filled with liquid nodded cordially to his friend. Morning, Doc, greeted Hoyne. Hope you doped out what we're going to tell the coroner yet. I knew the direct cause of Ritzky's death long ago was fear. The indirect cause, the thing that induced the fear and required careful examination and considerable chemical research. And it was... Psychoplasm. I don't get you, Doc. What's psychoplasm? No doubt you've heard of the substance called ectoplasm, regarding which Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has delivered numerous lectures, or an identical substance called teleplasm, discovered by Baron von schrenk while attending materialization seances with a medium known as Eva. While the Baron was observing and photographing this substance in Europe, my friend and colleague, Professor James Braddock, Was conducting similar investigations in this country. He named the substance psychoplasm, and I like the name better than either of the other two, as it is undoubtedly created and generated from invisible particles of matter through the power of the subjective mind. I've examined and analyzed many samples of this substance in the past. The plate I now have under the compound microscope and the different chemical determinations I've just completed Show conclusively that this is psychoplasm. But how? Where did it come from? I learned something of the history of Ritsky and his ward yesterday. Let me enlighten you on that score first. The man told the truth when he said he was appointed guardian of his niece, and also when he said that he had shot a dog. The dog in question was a Russian wolfhound, a present sent to the girl by her parents while they were touring Russia. He was only half-grown when he arrived, and the two soon became boon companions, frolicking and playing about the grounds together, or romping through the big house. Sometime after the death of Olga's parents, Ritzky, then editor of a radical newspaper in New York, took up his abode at Villa Rogers. The dog, by that time full-grown, took a violent dislike to him, and on one occasion, bit him quite severely. When he announced his intention of having the animal shot, the girl wept violently and swore she would kill herself if Shag, as she had named him, were killed. It seemed that she regarded him as a token of the love of her parents, who had sailed away, never to return. Shag, that's the name, broke in Hoyle excitedly. After that white thing floated out of the room, she made noises like a dog and then answered them, saying, Good dog, Shag and patting an imaginary head. She sure gave me the creeps, though, when she let out that growl. The vengeful Ritzky continued the doctor, was determined that Shag should die and found an opportunity to shoot him with a pistol when the girl was in the house. Shortly after, the faithful creature dragged himself to the feet of his mistress and died in her arms. He could not tell her who had taken his life, but she must have known subjectively, and as a result entertained a hatred of her uncle, of which she objectively knew nothing. Most people have potential mediumistic power. How this power is developed in certain individuals and remains practically dormant in others is a question that has never been satisfactorily explained. I personally believe that it is often developed because of intense emotional repressions, which, unable to find an outlet in a normal manner through the objective mind, find expression in abnormal psychic manifestations. This seems to be the case with Olga Rogers. She developed the power subjectively without objective knowledge that it existed. One of the most striking of psychic powers is that of creating or assembling The substance called psychoplasm, causing it to assume various forms and to move as if endowed with a mind of its own. Olga developed this peculiar power to a remarkable degree. Acting under the direction of her subjective intelligence, the substance assumed the form of her beloved animal companion and sought revenge on its slayer. He arrived a day late to save the object of her unconscious hatred. Too bad you were not there the night before, said Horn. The poor devil would be alive today if you'd been on hand with me the first night to dope the thing out. We might have saved him for a prison term or the gallows, replied the doctor a bit sardonically. You haven't seen this, of course. He took a small silver pencil from the table and handed it to the detective. What's that got to do with Open it? Unscrew the top. Careful. Hoyne unscrewed it gingerly and saw that the chamber, which was made to hold extra leads, was filled with a white power. Arsenic, said the doctor briefly. Did you notice the sickly pallor of that girl? The dark ring was under her eyes. Her loving uncle and guardian was slowly poisoning her, increasing the doses from time to time. In another month or six weeks, she would have been dead, and Ritsky, her nearest living relative, would have inherited her immense fortune. "'Well, I'll be damned,' exploded Hoyne. Dr. Dorp's laboratory assistant entered and handed a package of prints to his employer. "'Here are the proofs of last night's photographs,' said the doctor. "'Care to see them?' Hoyne took them to the window and scrutinized them carefully. All showed Ritsky leaning out of bed and on the light switch— His face contorted in an expression of intense horror. And, gripping his throat in its ugly jaws, was the white, misshapen phantasm of a huge Russian wolfhound. I hope you enjoyed The Phantom Wolfhound by Otis Edelbert Klein, as performed by yours, truly. If you've enjoyed this dip into the mind and pen of one of the original voices behind Weird Tales magazine, why not look and see his other published works? Beyond horror, he also had a love for adventure and is known for his stories in Oriental stories, as well as his Venus and Mars tales. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured classic author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as five bucks a month and get access to our entire audio archive Dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well, at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis jibe Until next week, stay spooky. and Get some sleep. If you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment,